Amen. Amen. The text this morning is portions of the first 12 verses of Ezekiel chapter 47. These are the words of God. Afterward, he brought me again under the door of the house, and behold, the waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. Now when I had returned, behold, at the brink of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to its months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine." Our gracious God and Father, I pray that your, as your word is present here with us now, that your spirit would be just as present, active, and working in our lives, applying this passage to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before turning to the word, I want to thank your elders for the kind invitation to speak to you. It's always good to come over here and see old friends and make new friends. Um, Nancy and I have enjoyed our time here very much, so thank you. I, I understand that you have bought some property. <laughs> the news has traveled. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, what it is to work on a building. What, what it, why a building? Why should Christians build places of worship? Well, I think the answer can be found in our text. Water brings life. Water brings life, and living water more so. Water brings life, living water brings more life, deeper life, richer life, better life, eternal life. I've frequently spoken before on the importance of assuming the center, and one of the central ways to do this is to create a place where living water can flow. Water is a gathering force. Water is a gathering force. What I'm going to be talking to you Today is about hydraulic Christianity. <laughs> in Ezekiel's vision, when the hand of the Lord was upon him, this is in chapter 40, chapter 40 one, through, 1 and 2, among other things, he saw this. Water flowed out of the house of God over the threshold, so that you've got this vision of this temple, and water is flowing out of the temple, over the threshold. Water ran out of the temple on the right side also, verse 2. A man with Ezekiel was measuring it, and a thousand cubits out, the water was ankle deep. You go a thousand cubits out, ankle deep. That's by the fourth or fifth century, right? Ankle deep. Verse three, another thousand, and it came to the knees. Verse four, yet another thousand, and the water was waist deep. Verse four, when he went forward, when he went forward another thousand cubits, the water was too deep to pass over. Verse five. The man then asked Ezekiel if he saw that, and he brought him back to the riverbank, verse 6. Do you see what I'm talking about? So the, the, right outside the temple, the pavement is wet, then it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's waist deep, and then it's too deep to swim. When he got there, he saw, when he got back, he saw that there were many trees on both sides of the river, verse 7. The water is going to flow east down to the sea, and it's going to heal the waters there. So the living water is going to transform the water that's already out there. The living water is transformational. Everything will live wherever the water flows. Verse 9. There will be a multitude of fish, and the apostle Peter with the others will become fishers of men. Verse 10, and then Mark 1, 17. 
There are going to be many fish, and Jesus appoints the apostles to become fishers of men. Even in that glorious day, there will remain some salt marshes. We see that in verse 11. Not everyone will be converted. Not every last person will be converted. There will be some salt marshes, but most will be converted. The trees on both sides of the river will produce abundant fruit according to month, and watered by the river from the sanctuary, the leaves will be for healing. Verse 12. Now that is the vision that the prophet Ezekiel gives us of the course of the gospel, the progress of the gospel. You should not be discouraged by the fact that here in uh, this area of the country, it only seems like it's ankle deep. Right? Well, I, you can't swim here. The, the nations aren't healed yet. We're not, the, the, the leaves aren't for the healing of the... No, wait, wait. What do you think it looked like in Ezekiel's day? Right? What, what, what did it look like in Abraham's day? When Abraham was taken outside of his tent and shown the night sky, what did he have to go on from the newspapers? Well, nothing. And that's why it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. The issue is the word of God. The issue is not what we see with our eyes. The issue is not what the media reports. The issue is what God says. This is Ezekiel's temple. Now, remember the, that the New Jerusalem, which is referred to in a number of different places, in Hebrews and uh, in Galatians, the Jerusalem above, and also in the book of Revelation, at the, at the glorious climax of the book of Revelation, remember that the New Jerusalem is the Christian church. Uh, the angel says to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Well, who's that? Well, it's the Christian church. The, the Christian church is the bride of Christ. So he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he took me into a high mountain and showed me the new Jerusalem. Come, I will show you the bride. And then he shows uh, John the new Jerusalem. This means that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, it says in Corinthians. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why is the new Jerusalem a perfect cube? 1,200 stadia by 1,200 stadia by 1,200 stadia, which is about 1,500 miles, right? And on each side, there's three gates on each side of this perfect cube. Why, why a perfect cube? Well, that's the shape, that's the size of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. And you are, the, you are that shrine. You are that temple. You are the bride, the wife of the lamb that uh, the angel shows to John. So the New Jerusalem is the Christian church. We can also see and see at a glance by comparing text with text, by comparing Revelation with Ezekiel, that Ezekiel's temple is also the Christian church. Ezekiel's temple is the same reality that is being pointed to in the book of Revelation, out of which living water flows. So the Christian church is that which out of living water flows. As we seek to understand this passage in Ezekiel, we should begin with this from Revelation as the key. The key for Christians is always to let the New Testament interpret Old Testament passages, particularly when they're difficult for us, if the imagery is strange or if we're not used to that kind of a metaphor. In the book of Revelation, we are, told, we are plainly told the meaning of this vision from Ezekiel. Listen to this in Revelation 22, 1 and 2. And he showed me a pure river of water of life. All right, living water, a, a, a flowing river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." 
So in both cases, in Ezekiel and Revelation, they're clearly talking about the same thing. In both cases, we have living water, we have a flowing river, we have trees on both sides of the river, we have fruit born every month on a monthly cycle, uh, uh, fruit born every month, and we have leaves that are used for healing. So both places, Ezekiel's temple and the New Jerusalem. So the New Jerusalem is the same thing as Ezekiel's temple, and both of them are the Christian church. All right, the New Jerusalem and Ezekiel's temple are the same. We have a similar picture in microcosm when it comes to the righteous man. We see that in Psalm 1-3 and Jeremiah 17-8. So what the church is corporately, each individual Christian ought to be on a micro level. Living, Jesus says in John that living water should flow out of our belly. All right, so if he calls, if he calls someone, if he is, elects someone and calls them into new life, then living water should flow out of that individual Christian. So the church is the place from which this living water flows. The church is the place from which living water goes everywhere else and transforms the water that's out there. Recalling uh, what we ought to recall from Scripture, this living water flows out of people. That's, the, that's where it comes from. It doesn't come from buildings. It comes from people. But I want, to make, I want you to stick a pin in that because I'm going to come back to that because there's a, there's a Gnostic mistake that many modern Christians fall into. Jesus promises living water to the Samaritan woman at the well. And he was talking about himself. That was John 4, 11. So uh, if you knew who you were talking to, uh, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He was talking about himself. Whoever drinks of the water that Jesus gives will find that he has become a well of that living water. That's John 4.14. He drinks, and then God makes him a source of living water for others, which is what happens in this instance in John 4.29 and 30. The woman uh, goes and tells everybody in the village, and they all come out. So she becomes a source of information to them. So uh, how does the living water get to the people in the town? It was... Jesus speaks to her, something happens to her, she goes and tells everybody, and they all come back out. And then a few chapters later, in the Gospel of John, Jesus shows how all his people become this source of living water. We come to him and drink because of our thirst, John seven thirty seven, and then living water flows out of us for others, John seven thirty eight. Why do we come? We come because we're thirsty. We come because we are parched. We come because we are living in a drought. And so you're summoned to Christ and you receive living water. But it's not possible to receive living water without becoming a source of living water. If you receive it, you're going to have to extend it. If you receive it, you, you can't receive it and then sit on it. You can't receive it and then hide it. You receive it and then you become a transmitter. You become uh, a source of living water to others. So John also tells us in this place what this water is exactly. He says in John 7:39 that the water of life is the Holy Spirit. The water of life is the Holy Spirit. So when you're converted, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you become, therefore, a source of the Holy Spirit's working in the lives of others, perhaps family, friends, neighbors. You become a source of, this, of the Spirit's working. Jesus says, said all of this in John 7 on the last day of the Feast of Booths when the Jews had a ceremony of pouring out water at the altar. So on the, it says on the last day of the feast, and the Jews had this 
symbolic symbol, they'd pour out water at the altar. And Jesus stands up and, and tells everyone that he is that living water. The Holy Spirit is that living water. And anyone who comes to him will have their thirst quenched. And then they will be the source of living water for others. This is God's plan. This is how God wants to save the world. Now, this is all glorious, but what does it have to do with your property? <laughs> what, what does it do, have to do with this pump house that you're planning on building? Your new church building. Because that's what a church building is. It's a pump house. The church is not supposed to function as a rain barrel or a retention pond or a collection tank. That's not... That's not right. Just as you receive the Holy Spirit individually and then you become a source of it for others, so the church collectively should be a place where the, the people who have received this living water and who want to flow out gather together in order to flow out more effectively. The church is not supposed to function as a static place of collection. The church is a place from which the water is supposed to flow everywhere else. That's, that's how the church should function. The way that the earth is going to come to be as full of the knowledge of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea is because it will flow out from the church. Isaiah 11.9, Habakkuk 2.14. Go out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Go a couple miles down. How wet is it there? It's pretty wet. It's as wet as it's possible to get. That's how wet Seattle is going to be with the knowledge of the Lord. That's how. That's how much. And you say, <laughs> surely you jest. Why did you bring in a jester to speak the word to us? But do this, and the people are going to gather to water because the water is going to flow to them. Uh, people, 90% of the world's population lives on the water, lives next to water, near water, rivers or, or bays or harbors. Uh, people gather to water. People gather the water. And everywhere water flows, it, it, it's a, it's a, there's a reciprocity thing going. The water flows to where the people are, and the people will gather to where the water is. Having said all this, we shouldn't reject intelligent craftsmanship that comes with building particular institutions, particular buildings. The fact that we are talking about these spiritual, we're not Gnostics, the fact that we're talking about these spiritual realities and that the Holy Spirit comes into you and the Holy Spirit flows out of you, it doesn't follow from that, that because the Holy Spirit is flowing out of you to others, that you shouldn't wear clothes. And it doesn't follow that the church corporately shouldn't have, a clo shouldn't have clothing, shouldn't have a housing. Well, that's what a building is. It keeps the rain off, keeps it warm. You're able to function together as people, doing people things. So you, you gather in a particular place, and the building is uh, the clothing of the church corporate. And as Winston Churchill once put it, he said, we f first we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. Right? You, be, you start to become the way you dress. You start to present the way you dress. And this means that you ought to put thought into the kind of building that you're going to build. So we don't reject intelligent craftsmanship that comes with building particular things like, like a church building. So long as we remember the central point, there is no problem, no problem, zero problem, with building irrigation ditches or pump houses or water trucks or channels or canals or helicopters with buckets underneath them. 
our, our task is to deliver water everywhere. That's, that's the assigned task. And it should be living water. All right? that's, the, that's the task. Now, whenever there are large amounts of water, which is what we're praying for, when, when you pray for reformation and revival, you're praying for lots of water. When you get lots of water, all these things I mentioned, you know, ditches and channels and canals and all of those things become an absolute necessity. The danger, of course, and this is the danger, and this is what a lot of American Christians are nervous about, evangelical Christians are nervous about. The danger, of course, is to forget what these projects are all for, and then you start to complain about the water. It keeps getting your precious equipment all wet. And that's the problem, all right? So, the, so here's, the, here's the balance. We want a container to hold the water, and we want the water. If you just build a nice container, a nice cup to hold the water, you might forget that it's supposed to contain water. If you just say, well, we don't want to become idolatrous, we don't want to become building focused, we don't want to be too obsessed with the cup, so we're just going to let everything puddle on the floor. <laughs> well, that's no good either, right? Um, let me change the metaphor for just a moment to, to fire. It's, there's, it's like there's two kinds of Christians. There's the Christians who believe in nice fireplaces, and there are the Christians who believe in fires. <laughs> All right, you have these, these ornate cathedrals that are this meticulously, beautifully carved mantelpiece, and it, but there's not been a fire in there for 500 years. No, last time... Last time someone preached a sermon in one of these places that's roused anybody was in the Reformation, a long time ago. And so you've got these ornate fireplaces that are the, there's not even wood ash in there anymore. And then you've got our more exuberant brethren who worship at the Knee Deep in Glory Worship Center. And they, they believe in fires, but they light them on the couches and on the coffee table. And, you know. But at least they know there's supposed to be a fire. Right. Change it back to water. We want to. We we should know that we're we are living water. We are to extend living water to our community. We want the whole world to get wet, and we want to use our buildings with that in mind. the The buildings are are there in order to enable you to communicate the message, to preach the gospel more effectively, and you're going to have some people who um, who forget what sanctifies what. The, the altar sanctifies the gold, not the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't create man so that there'd be somebody around to keep the Sabbath. Right? So how many, uh, how, many, how many of you ladies shopping, you think, no, I better not buy the, those cookies and take them home. Why? Well, somebody might eat them. <laughs> well, okay. Um, what's, the, what's the point? The point of preparing the meal is so that people will eat the meal. The point of um, building the apparatus to transport the water is to transport the water. It's not to become obsessed with keeping the equipment clean and shiny and not no wear and tear because, man, the longer you run that pump, the more you're, sooner you're going to have to replace it. Well, yeah, that's true, but that's the point. We're supposed to wear ourselves out. We're supposed, we're supposed to build things that wear out. We're supposed to build things that fall apart. And we do that because we want our great-grandchildren to build another one. 
And we want them to understand from us that we understand what is of first importance and what is of secondary importance. So you don't want to build a building that's a pump house and then you start banishing people who want to bring water through. You know, someone wants to conduct an evangelistic meeting and, well, we can't do that Tuesday night because we've got to, you know, we have to clean up afterwards for prepare for Sunday. No, <laughs> use it up, use it up, use it up. How, what can we build that we can throw into the task? What can we build that we are going to dedicate to this task of world evangelization? So, another danger, a great one, is expecting any one building to accomplish what we need to accomplish uh, in your community. One building is not going to do it. It's like building a rain bar barrel and then thinking that you're done. Now, think of it more like tide pools filling up, first here, then here, then over there. You've got the, the tides coming in, and when the, tides, when the water moves, you want to be prepared, you want to think through it beforehand so that you know what to do. So this is how we should think of our task as we assume the center. I used that phrase a little bit earlier. When the people of God remember who they are, this mistake is not made. You are the water. You are the, out of your belly will flow the rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit works person to person. But you are not a disembodied spirit. You, you have feet. You go places. We have bodies, and the, your body is not simply, and this is the mistake many Reformed people make, they think their body is a carrying case to get their brain to church. So they walk, they walk to church, and then they load up data in their brain, and, that's, and I need to get my brain to church, and then I get my brain home again. And then the, our material existence is somehow uh, considered uh, nothing but a distraction. Well, that's, that's Gnosticism. That's not world and life view Christianity. That's not the Reformed faith. God wants to save the, this physical world. His intention is that the nations would stream to him. His intention is that communities, towns, neighborhoods would come to Christ. That's the whole point. And you want, you want to have places that honor God, places where the word of God is declared, where it is convenient to communicate this message, this living message of living water to other people. Now, the danger is when it's convenient to communicate, then all of a sudden it's also convenient to forget you're supposed to be communicating. But it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Uh, when the United States was being established and settled, this, part, this portion of the country where you are now is the, least, is the least churched area of the country. And that's because we were losing our faith as we moved west. So when, when we first settled on the east coast, one of the first things the Puritans would build would be a church building after the brewery. They'd, they'd, <laughs> they'd build a brewery. They'd, they'd, they'd build certain basic uh, buildings, but the church was one of the first things that they would do. And then the town would grow up around the church. The church was central. And it's possible uh, for a churched area of the country to apostatize. That's possible. It's been done. It's been done in Europe. It's been done in New England. But it's also easier to apostatize more quickly when you have no churches at all. When you have these memorials to the fact that these people once worshipped 
God. And there are places where they still are worshiping God. And they still are proclaiming the gospel. You are in a better place when you have stations where water can flow. So, the water flows out of human hearts. The spirit comes from people. The spirit flows from person to person. And then, but then someone says, well, if that's the case, then why don't we just dispense with buildings altogether? Well, because you don't have the ability to dispense with bodies altogether. It's from persons. It doesn't flow, the living water doesn't flow from soul to soul. The, the, it's from person to person. And it flows from person to person because you had someone over for a meal where you put food in your bone box, sat around a table, and you put food in this end, and you cooked it nicely, and you all visited around the table with these people from across the street, your neighbors, and, and your body and the food you prepared and the wine that you served and the things that you did were, were all part of the package. We are to win friends for ourselves, Jesus said, by means of unrighteous mammon. You're supposed, you're supposed to use stuff. You're supposed to give gifts. You're supposed to be open-handed. And you're supposed to be open-handed with your life, not just open-handed with your soul. Right? Because how can you... There's this non-Christian uh, across the street, and his soul is dark and empty, and he's spiritually dead. I'm going to stand in the driveway this morning and send love vibes in his direction. <laughs> well, love vibes don't work. That's not, how that's not how we were made. That's not how we were created. We are created as people. And I'm, I'm fond of saying that theology flows out your fingertips, and whatever it is that's flowing out your fingertips is your theology. That's your theology. And so consequently, when you build a church building and you're doing it to the glory of God, and you remember the purpose of the church building, which is to communicate the gospel to other people, and you have edifying meetings and discipleship meetings and Bible studies and training centers, and, and you're equipping people, and you have a meal with Jesus for down and outers, and you're just using the building in all the, all the ways that a building can be used, with you remembering what is of first importance, what is, what is of second importance, and so on. You are assuming the center. So the spirit is true. The spirit comes from people, not from a wooden pulpit like this, or from a table, or from the bread and wine, or from the baptismal font, or from the building that will contain all these God-given activities. It doesn't, you can't just build the building and walk away and have the building do it by itself. You can't just build the pulpit and walk away. You have to build the pulpit and then preach from it. You have to uh, set up the table and put bread and wine on it. And then you have to break the bread and then you have to distribute it. And you have to say to people, this is the body of Christ broken for you. You have to tell people what you're doing. And as you tell people what you're doing, they hear and believe. And when they hear and believe, living water flows from the Christian, from the believer, to the person who is not yet a believer. These are all God-assigned activities. Everything that Jesus told us to do, we should do with, while not being rained on. <laughs> and I, I scarcely need to bring this up. You live in Seattle. You, you, you should want to witness to people in order to get them wet in one way while keeping them dry in another. We assume the center when we are filled with the Spirit and when he flows out from us. We are filled with the Spirit. We assume the center when we're filled with the Spirit, when he flows out 
from us. This is because the spirit is that center. The spirit is the center. And this happens when we use physical things. Present your bodies, it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your what? Your spiritual worship. He says, present your bodies. And what is that? Is spiritual worship. That means the car you drive in is an altar. The chair you're sitting in right now is an altar. The bed you sleep in is an altar. Everything you do with your body is presented to God. Present your bodies, a living sacrifice, and presenting your body as a living sacrifice is your spiritual worship. That's what it, that's what it means to be spiritual. In scripture, spiritual does not mean ethereal. Spiritual means obedient. To be a spiritual man is to be an obedient man. To be a spiritual woman is to be an obedient woman. It's not to be a ghostly woman. It's not to be a ghostly man. It's to, it's to with all the resources, with your money, with your house, with your car, with your family, all the resources that you have, what you want to do is present it to God, submit it, put it on the altar, and submit it to God, present your body as a living sacrifice, and that is spiritual worship. So when you dedicate your building, when God gives you your building, as he will do, when God gives you that building and you have a dedication service, as I'm sure you will have, that dedication service is you collectively putting your body on the altar. You put the, you put the body, the church building, and everything it contains on the altar, and that presentation of this physical building is your spiritual worship. When we gather here today, physically, we gather in a physical room with physical bodies. You drove here in a physical car in order to do what God summoned you to do, which means that everything you do is spiritual. There is a sense in which, of course, there are spirits. The devil is a spirit. The demons believe that there's one God and they tremble. There's a, there's a sense in which the devil is more spiritual than you are. But that has to do with... Um, uh, metaphysics. That has to do with the ontology of the thing. That's what they're like. They're spirits. But sp a spiritual man is an obedient man. A spiritual woman is an obedient woman. A spiritual child is an obedient child. So when we offer our bodies rightly, it is our spiritual worship. When we offer our bodies rightly, and when we offer our corporate body rightly, which would be your church building, it is your spiritual worship. The devil is a spirit who is unspiritual in this sense, and you have ten toes which can be spiritual if they are shod with the gospel of peace. So if you're telling other people about the good news of Jesus Christ, then your feet are blessed spiritual feet. And if you build a building that becomes your, your, your congregation's spiritual feet, your congregation's spiritual hands, that is a spiritual thing. No matter how physical it is, how, how your, your spiritual, your spiritual um, life is, is covered in sheetrock. Your spiritual life has carpet. Your, your spiritual life is this tangible thing that you have given to God obediently. This is because, and this is so important, this is because the living church is always waterfront property. Always waterfront property. There's water. There's always water there. There's always something there to quench a sinner's thirst. Many trees grow there, and their leaves have healing properties. The trees grow on both sides of the river, and the river is full of life, and it brings 
life. And this is, um, well, I don't want to go too far astray, but I want to, I want to go a little bit astray. <laughs> when this water flows down in Ezekiel's vision, this water flows out and gets deeper and deeper as it goes. And it comes to, Ezekiel says, two places, Eglayim and Gedi. Um, En Gedi is the spring at Gedi. It's like the, the place named Colorado Springs. So the E-N is the Hebrew word for spring. So En Gedi is the spring at Gedi, and En Eglayim is the spring at Eglayim. Have you ever wondered when you get to the end of the Gospel of John why uh, Jesus is, the, the men are out there on the Sea of Galilee fishing, and Jesus has already caught some fish, and he has a charcoal fire burning on the, on the beach, and he's cooking the fish, and he calls them in, and Peter jumps out and swims to shore, and then they haul, and, and he tells them, um, just before this, he tells them, as back when he told, when he first called them, he, he um, told Peter he'd make him fisher of men, and uh, that was at the first call, and then Peter, since that time, has denied the Lord three times, and at the conclusion of the Gospel of John, Jesus is about to ask Peter, three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me, sort of reversing the, reversing the denial. Well, when Peter, see, when the Lord tells them from the beach, lower your net and take, it, take in a haul, they take in a haul and it, and it almost breaks the, uh, bursts the net, and they, they drag it ashore. And then John tells us a little curious fact. He says, there were 153 fish. And how many Bible readers down through the centuries have said something to themselves, who cares? <laughs> I, you know, I have zero interest in how many fish there were. <laughs> I don't see any edification at all in, okay, 157, 153, what, why, why is John putting that little detail in there? Well, clearly, John is reprising the initial call. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Remember, in just a few months, Pentecost is coming. The, the, the Peter, this Peter who denied the Lord in just a matter of weeks is going to be preaching the gospel to Jerusalem, to all of Jerusalem, and he's the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and thousands are going to come. Right? The, the net is going to burst in just a matter of weeks. They're going, to, they're going to be bringing these people in. Well, 153 is the triangular of the number 17. 17, a triangular is if I take the number 17 and add 17 to 16 to 15 to 14 to 13 down to 1. If I do that, the triangular is 100, of 17 is 153. Now, that's one item. The second thing is in, um, in Hebrew and Greek and in Latin, uh, in, well, first, in English, we use Arabic numerals for math, and we use Roman letters for our words. In Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, they didn't do that. They did double duty. So they used their Roman letters both for their numbers and for their uh, words, which meant that you could look at somebody's name and you could, you could toggle a little switch in your brain, and instead of that person's name, you could see a row of numbers. So Doug would be D, uh, D would be four. So alpha, beta, gamma, delta, you would have one, two, three, four. And so you could look at anybody's name and see a row of numbers instead of a name because that's, what, that's how they used it. Well, so consequently, uh, this is a thing that they used to do. They'd add up the numbers and see what the numerical value of people's names were. 
And Hebrew did this, and Greek did this, and Latin did this. Well, back to Ezekiel, if you look at Eglium, the numerical value of Eglium is 153. And the numerical value of Gedi, the, the two places where Ezekiel's water flows, is 17. So in Gedi, 17, 153. And what, what is the significance of these two places? It's where the living water flows. It's where the living water flows. It's almost as though there were a higher power at work. <laughs> now, what, what is God telling us? He's telling us he's going to make us fishers of men. So how on, how on earth would it be possible for someone to be dubious about Christians who want to manufacture, you'll, I'll make you fishers of men. And some of you have said, well, let's build a boat. No, no, it's not get distracted from the mission. We need, to, we need to rent a place and think about fish. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't tell you to gather somewhere and think about fish. He told you to fish. And you ought to be thinking, what's the most effective, cost-effective, efficient way to fish for men? How can we preach the gospel to, to this area of the country? How can we become a place from which living water flows? Well, always remember, always remember what the, what the mission is, what the task is. All it has to, the, the trees grow on both, both sides of the river, and the river is full of life, and it brings life. The, the river is full of life, and it brings life, and the trees grow there, and the, tree, the trees that grow on both sides of the river, uh, are, it's the tree of life, clearly. And this is the tree that we were excluded from when our first parents were banished from the Garden of Eden. We are given access back to the tree of life. So all it has to do is be what it is and flow. Each one of you is a spigot. Well, let me change that. Every one of you is a spigot if you're converted. If you're a converted person, if you are, if the Holy Spirit has touched you, if you have received the Holy Spirit, then each person here is a source of living water for others. If that's not happened, if you're not converted, if you're not regenerate, then that means that you are surrounded by people who are, and you're in need of that living water flowing. But everybody in the world either has to be flowing with living water or have living water flow to them. And this is what I want to press upon you. Everyone here, everyone here should walk away from this knowing that you have a critical role in how God is going to cause this water to flow. Everyone here is part of it. It's, it is not simply, uh, we sometimes think, when, especially when the crowd is large, when the church grows and you think, oh, there are so many, there's so many people here and I'm just a nobody. I'm just nothing. I don't have very many gifts. Well, this is, no one raindrop thinks that it's responsible for the flood. Right? And no one raindrop is responsible for the flood. And yet, at the same time, all of the raindrops are responsible for the flood. All of them contribute. Uh, th this is another image that the New Testament gives us, and that's the image of body life. Every part of the body has a function. Every person has a role to play. And our concern is not whether we're an important part of the body or an unimportant part of the body. Our concern ought to be whether we are a healthy part of the body or an unhealthy part of the body. Are we alive or are we dead? That's the first question. Are we alive or dead? And if we're alive, are we healthy? Are we thriving? If we're healthy and thriving, it doesn't matter if you feel like it's insignificant. 
It's, and, and it doesn't matter collectively if you build a church and then you look around and say, you know, there are hundreds of churches in the Seattle area. We're just, we're just uh, an insignificant, uh, what, what are we supposed to do? Well, what we're, supposed to, what we're supposed to do is to be faithful, be at our post, be doing what God calls us to do, be responding to the word of God, to be responding to what the word says and not what the papers say, not what the pundits say, not what the latest book says. What does the word of God say? That means there are no little people. There are no little churches. There are no little centers of obedience. How many times has God done something remarkable out of some nobody place, nowhere place, like Nazareth, right? What good thing comes from Nazareth? They, Gal, Galilee was, um, as far as the, Judean, the Judeans were concerned, the, the Galileans were just a cut above the Samaritans. They, the Galileans were these Jewish hillbillies, and nobody, it was a good deal of ethnic tension between the Judeans and the Galileans, and God... And the Jews were despised by the Romans. So not only did God have his son, his incarnate son, uh, born among the Jews, but he had him raised among the Galileans, so the Jews, who were a despised people, would despise him. <laughs> and then he would uh, heal Samaritans and, pre and present the gospel to the Samaritan woman at the well. God deals with little people. God deals with outcasts. God forgives great sin. God heals your brokenness and your pettiness. God puts things back together. And he not only does he do the not only does he do this, but he delights to do this. This is something that he it's his specialty. He has given himself to it and he has told him he says not many noble, not many aristocrats, not many high no, that's not how I want to do it. That's not how I want to uh, transform the world. I want to transform the world by using people who know that they're insignificant and who keep the priorities right. All right? Might be a little building, might be, you know, might be saying, oh man, I can't, I don't see. Remember when they rebuilt the temple? All the old timers were lamenting because they remembered the first temple and the other people were shouting for joy and people were weeping. We all have different perspectives. You, we all have different um, places we're coming from. But God is only coming from one place. And that is the salvation of the world. That's what he's doing. That's what he's up to. And our task is simply to be available and obedient where we are. And this means we have to let go of our fear. This means we have to let go of our opinions. This means we have to let go of our bitterness. This means we have to let go of all the, the, the thing that gets in the way is sin. Uh, finitude does not get in the way. Finitude doesn't interfere with God's purposes at all. God was not limited because Gideon only had 300 men. God was the one who took it down to 300 men. Christ was not limited because he only had 12 apostles. He's the one who picked 12 apostles. He didn't say, I need 1,200. He, he picked 12 apostles, most of them blue-collar workers. Right? He, he, Jesus did that on purpose. That's not God's limitation. The thing that's going to hang you up, the thing that's going to interfere with you being able to be a full, blessed participant in this, and there's only one thing, and that's fear. That's, that's fear, fear, of, uh, fear of man as opposed to fear of God. 
That is sin, basically, the boil it all down, sin, self-centeredness, bitterness, lust, uh, whatever it is, let it go. Confess your sin and then say, God, you delight to use the small. You delight to use the insignificant. You delight, you tell us not to despise the day of small beginnings. So you've just bought a piece of property and you go out and look at the weeds and say, that's a small beginning right there. <laughs> that's a small beginning. And I just, we, um, next month, Lord willing, the walls are in our fellowship hall and are going to start going up next month. And it's been 40 years. Right? It's been a long time. And that's just the fellowship hall. We're not, we're not, you know, and maybe I'll see the, other, maybe I'll see the sanctuary before I go to glory. But if I don't, I'm going to see a better one. <laughs> <laughs> Right? You see that? Um, God, the, the point is not, will I be there when it all is said and done? No, we're, we're still in the days of the early church. There's a lot of work yet to be done. And what we want to do is be, let's say God just allows this congregation, the people who are alive in this room, in this generation, in this time, let's say he just allows you, permits you, has, gives you the great grace of taking the next three steps forward. If that's what you do, and it's obedient, then glory to God. That's all, that's all that's necessary. And so we give him the glory. Each one of you should walk away knowing that God wants his water to flow through you to others. And he wants you to work together with your brothers and sisters as you do this. Our Father and gracious God, we're very, very grateful to you for your word, for your gospel. We thank you. We praise you. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who's active and present here with us this morning, would touch hearts and soften our hearts. Anything that, anything that anybody here needs to hear, I, pr I pray that your spirit would ensure that we hear it. Father, we submit all of these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So if you would all turn to 135.